Hello, everybody. I'm Pasha Marlowe, and this is the Let's Pleasure Be the Measure podcast. I believe this is going to be number 51, episode 51. So I'm super excited uh, to be into the the 50s um, in age too. I'm turning 51 this weekend. So this is a a momentous number uh, for me. And I bring to you today, Felicia Burnett to celebrate the occasion. And Felicia, hello, is a love coach, which is right up my alley because I studied marriage and family therapy and and I love talking about relationships. Um, I haven't dated in a while, but we'll be talking about dating. And Felicia is also the founder of Demystify Dating, which is a coaching program. Super excited to hear about that too. And we just have juicy conversations every time we talk. So she's coming in and we're going to talk about a whole lot of things. Pleasure. Hello, Felicia. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me and happy early birthday. Thank you. Yeah, I just realized that when I said 51, I'm like, wait a minute, I'm turning 51 this weekend. So yeah, 50 was um, not really all that momentous because of COVID. But this year, I'm flying myself out to Detroit to spend time with my son. So yeah, I'm excited to see him. Yeah. Um, So I have two older kids and a teenager. How old are your kiddos? Uh, I have one. He's 14, almost 15. Okay. Okay. It's always just fun for me to get a context because you've been single and married and divorced like me. I added a remarried in there and who knows what later to come, but um, it's fun to have all this perspective, right? It helps when we're coaching, especially relationships. Absolutely. If you haven't experienced it, it's hard to actually understand what it's like. Yeah. And how did you determine that you wanted to get into dating, uh, coaching and relationship coaching and love coaching. What was the process? Well, it started about four years ago. Um, I was fresh out of a relationship, uh, trying to figure out what went wrong. It wasn't my marriage. It was the the relationship right after my marriage. And, um, I decided I would just date a bunch. You know, I went on over a hundred first dates to figure out. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) That was kind of fun. That was, that was fun until, until itself too. Were they like speed dates or how long did you spend on each date? Um, some were like 30 minutes to meet for a drink and some ended up being like six hours long because we had a blast with each other. Fantastic. Yeah. So through that, I kind of like took notes and, you know, eventually about four or five different people had told me you should coach this. And so I started thinking about it. I started putting together maybe like a program. I had some, um, some practice clients to, mm-hmm. to work it out. I also went and got my health and life coaching certification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I had a baseline of understanding about coaching. Uh, and then I, I launched uh, two years ago yeah. and I've been coaching ever since. It's kind of a fun passion project of mine. And yeah, I love it. It's really fun to help people. I focus on people in middle age. Okay. Because I find that people when they're younger, college, high school, like they get it. They, uh, they have, they have opportunities to meet other people. Right. But by the time you're in middle age, it's, you don't want to date at work because that's just a, a horrible idea. You yes. don't want to probably date at your church because you know, you have to go there every week. What if it doesn't work out? Mm-hmm. And so people are having a really hard time connecting and finding people. Um, yeah. And it's just a different ball game when you're in your thirties and forties and fifties. Yeah. And 
And typically somebody of that age might also have children, which becomes an issue everywhere from time management and ability to date to what kind of impact that'll have on the family unit, right? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with desire. There are a lot of people who don't want to date until their kids are a little older, don't mm-hmm. want to be somebody new around their children, don't yeah. have time um, yes. or finances like money is a big deal too like they don't have money to to be going out on a bunch of dates that feel like they're leaving nowhere so a lot of people choose not to date while their children are young and that's a totally valid choice yes yes and after a hundred dates did you know when you found the right person was it was it an obvious uh for me it was it took me a while to talk him into me Okay. Um, so, but we've known each other about four years and, nice. um, I knew what I was looking for. Right. Um, the thing about dating, and this is something that I, I think people don't talk enough about is it's not as much looking at other people date. When you date, you learn a lot about yourself. Mm-hmm. You learn what, what judgments, what snap judgments do you have about people you learn what you're willing to tolerate from people mm-hmm. uh, you learn how you like to present yourself to other people. Um, you learn what walls or what masks you wear with other people. So yes, that process alone really helped me grow and understand who I am as a person mm-hmm. and also helped me figure out where I was going wrong. And I feel yes. like I learned so much that I can like help other people with what I learned from that process as well. Nice. Right. Because in all the relationships we have, we are the common denominator. So we have to recognize our part in the, the system yeah. and uh, potentially the, the conflicts, right? So yeah. what did you find out about yourself that was very significant that allowed you to have more successful relationship with yourself, but then also other people? Yeah. So this might sound a little controversial. Great. I love it. That's right. perfect so for the podcast. I, I, so there's you cannot like open up your web browser these days without hearing the word narcissist, right? Mm-hmm. Like any, like you're scrolling, scrolling, everything's narcissist mm-hmm. um, or the, the narcissistic abuse, narcissistic recovery, totally a thing. Absolutely a thing. And um, you know, my relationship right after my marriage was, it was rocky. We got along really well, but there was alcoholism involved and he was a classic narcissist, like mm-hmm. to a T. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was talking to my therapist after that, uh, I big believer in therapy. I think everybody should get it. Um, and she said, you know, Felicia narcissism and narcissistic behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. Mm. You have to allow people to treat you that way. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of put up my little antenna. I was so, so offended when she first said it. I was like, you're blaming the victim. Like I am victimized here. And then I was like, wait, I'm actually a really strong woman. I don't like to play the victim. Why am I wanting to play the victim right now? Yes. Um, so put a little antenna up for narcissistic behaviors. And I started to be able to identify them in other people mm-hmm. as I was dating, as I was getting to know people. And honestly, in my own personal relationships, Mm-hmm. and stop accepting those behaviors. Yeah. So that helped not only like with my love life, with my dating life, but also with, you know, my family life and, you know, problematic people at work and whatnot, figuring out that we're 
willing to the the behavior people are giving you is what you're willing to accept. And why do you think we're willing to accept narcissism or abuse or affairs or addictions or all the things? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question and a hard one. Um, I have to preface this with I am not a psychologist. But you studied psychology and you I have did. a lot of experience. I did. I, I, I have a four year degree in psychology, but I am not a therapist. Um, I intentionally um, I, I am open about that because I'm not a you know qualified professional. But I think that a lot of it has to do with the patterns that we learn when we're young. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yes. I talk to a lot of my clients, a lot of my friends, myself. When we have seen that um, narcissistic pattern play out when we're young, mm-hmm. we don't know any different. So mm-hmm. we have to kind of unlearn those patterns. Same with attachment patterns. You have to unlearn patterns that were modeled to you growing up. That's part of what I talk about in my coaching program. We talk about who your models were growing up and what was good about them, what was bad about them, how you want to change it. Um, and and see how, how you can fix things to not keep repeating the same patterns. Yes. And as a therapist, I would also add that it's a lot about worth. Like, do we feel worthy? of accepting love um, that is pure or true or loyal or safe, yes. um, which of course usually goes back to trauma and probably generations of trauma. We could go into all that, but yeah, there's, there's patterns that just continue generations uh, into our own lives and into our own relationships. Um, and I always find that in looking at our relationships, if we don't look at our primary relationships as children, we're really missing a key piece in um, how we, how we've learned the behaviors and how we learned to come to accept as you're bringing up how we yeah. come to accept other people's behaviors. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, we learn how to love yeah. from our parents and from our siblings, how our home life was growing up. And yes. so if that method of loving had mm-hmm. harmful behaviors in it, it's very hard to unlearn it. Yes. And a lot of us never do unlearn it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a lot of, it, it takes doing the work to, to figure out what's not working. Um, and, yeah. fix and I love that your therapist asked you that very difficult question. What part, uh, I don't remember exactly how you said he or she phrased it, um, as to what part you play in the narcissism or, or how you're accepting it. But I, I find that the most impactful questions in therapy are often that it's sometimes called shadow work. Like what part do you play in this problem? And even with my child's illness, my therapist will say, how is this, how is this illness benefiting you? I'm thinking what, like, I was like mad, mad. They asked the question, um, really resentful and judgmental and critical and mm-hmm. defensive. And yet, even if it, even if there's and I, I think we always do have a part to play in all of these systems, but even if I didn't, it's such a great question because it makes you really get synced in deep to your grounding of, of uh, how you find yourself in these situations. And it just, it's just a great question um, to ask ourselves anytime we're in an argument with our partner or a conflict with our child, like, how are we playing a part in this? It's not just the other person yelling or slamming a door, you know, what happened just before that? And, and how are we part of that? Yeah. The patterns. And so um, I have not dated in uh, 14 years. Um, (laughs) If I were to date 
um, post marriage, I would be very confused as a midlifer as to where to go uh, safely because I'm not going to go out like I used to do. Um, So where, and especially the pandemic, like where do you tell people to go to meet people these days? Well, yes, things have changed. I will say though, when I got married way back in 2006, I met my ex-husband online. Uh Uh-huh. We were a good match for a while and we're still very good friends. We co-parent really well together. Um, but yeah, online dating is, it's revolutionized in yes. the, since then. Um, but nine, over 90% of people are doing online dating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's only a fraction of the single people. There's, there's about 30% of adults in the United States who are single mm-hmm. and only about half of those consider themselves looking because okay. dating can be kind of rough. So 30% are single, but only 15% are even looking. Yes. Okay. And so, is, is that across all sexualities, as far as you know, that percentage? Yeah. So for the LGBTQ community, it's more 50-50, 50% in partnerships and 50% single. It's a higher percentage. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And when you look at it, even by gender, that's even more interesting because Men, while they're younger, they make up about half of the single people when women, I think, are around 30%. But in the older generation, women make up half, while men make up a much smaller percentage, obviously, because people start to die off as you get older. And women That's what I was wondering if this was a um, mortality issue. Yeah. So the women part, the mortality issue is obvious, but I'm still kind of struggling with that. Like, why are younger men staying single longer? And where is that mismatch in the age? I'm not quite sure what, uh, what is causing that in the data. Yeah, that's really interesting. That would be, that would be fascinating to, to look at. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that you open your conversations to the LGBTQ community. Um, I know I'll speak for myself. I identify as the B, the bi in uh, LGBTQ. Um, do you identify with the community? Yeah. Um, well, I bisexual, pansexual. Um, I often describe my, it depends on who my audience is. A lot of people don't understand what pansexual means. So I'll say bisexual, but I consider myself pansexual. Mm-hmm. Um, have been my entire adult life, uh, mm-hmm. men and women. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I have found that there are, are definite differences um, mm-hmm. in terms of how people date and interact with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, in, you know, heterosexual relationships versus same-sex relationships. Um, and so that's been kind of a fun dynamic and fun um, uh, perspective to be able to bring to my coaching. Yeah, I tend to coach more men than women. Okay. Uh, and they, they can respect what I have to say because I also date women. Okay. A lot of times men will just be like, oh, women are crazy or women are too hard to figure out or whatever. Like they're, they're very dismissive about it. But when I say like, I date women too, I can explain it. Uh, they tend to respect it a little bit more. Okay. And are you teaching people or coaching people to find a date or to stay in a relationship longer? What's your, what's the goal? Yeah. So my primary um, coaching practice has focused on men between, you know, 35 to 60. Mm -hmm. So usually people who are either divorced or widowed 
Mm -hmm. um, and I focus on developing communication skills and emotional intelligence, and also just the nuts and bolts of dating, like how to flirt, how to give someone a good orgasm, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. how to really engage with someone on an authentic and genuine level. So that when you get into your next relationship, it's one that's going to last because okay. so many of us, like we have our first marriage, it goes wrong. And then we don't take the time to do any kind of self-reflection and figure out what our role was and what went wrong, why it broke down, why we chose the person in the first place. Cause sometimes mm -hmm. we just married the wrong person. Right. And then we jump right into the next relationship. So I usually catch people like a little bit after a breakup. Um, that's where, you know, my coaching begins to like become enticing to people when they're starting to wonder like, oh, I wonder what I did wrong. Cause a lot of people, they just like to assume that it's all the other person, right. but if it's always the other person, there might be some things you need to work on. Yes. Yes. <laughs> if you're, if you're always the one leaving because of something somebody else did and feeling always victimized, there's probably something yeah. you want to look at. Yeah. And or you if you're always the one being left. Right. Both. No? Right. Do you, do you see a lot of infidelity in your work? Um, a lot of people who are single because of infidelity. Yeah. Like, is that a, one of the primary reasons still why people leave their relationships or marriages? It is one of the reasons, um, the people who I coach, I'm not going to say that's a top reason. Okay. A lot, of, a lot of it has to do, uh, with people getting married too, too young mm -hmm. with, uh, people not having good communication skills, mm -hmm. a lot of it's attachment style. Mm -hmm. Um, and then a lot of it too is finances. Yes. A lot of my clients have had a lot of, uh, uh, trouble arguing about money in their okay. relationships. That's, I think that is one of the top reasons for divorce in the United States. Yeah. And then ironically, people stay in their marriages because it's too expensive to leave or, yes. um, or have two homes or whatever it is. And so, yeah, you can be arguing about money and want to get out or have that financial freedom. And then especially now, um, yeah. the way the world is right now. Uh, A friend of mine in New York City got divorced four years ago and yeah. just barely stopped living together. They had, right. they had, yeah. they had a three-story house. So she lived on the top floor. He lived on the bottom floor. The kids were in the middle. Okay. Took turns parenting from each floor because it's just too darn expensive to get divorced yeah. in two places in New York. Absolutely. Yeah. My first husband and I, and my current husband, and I do more of a cohabitating co-parenting type uh, relationship um, where we we share our living space um, and it's not an intimate relationship anymore, but it certainly makes sense for us as partners and parents right now beyond finances. Uh, but yeah, that I'm sure right now takes a, is a big toll for people. Um, the ability to, to live separately. Yeah, well, especially yeah. with COVID. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now way back um, I, my brain remembers you saying orgasm. So we're going to go, we're going to circle back <laughs> yes, to that. Exactly. You gave me a transition, but then you added stuff. So I couldn't All jump right. right in with it, but you said something along the lines of you teach people to give good orgasms or give, uh, lead people to orgasm. I don't remember how you, um, uh, displayed it, but also do you teach people how to receive orgasms? 
Yes. Okay. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. So I'm just going to let you talk because I'm not as experienced in this. Yeah. I mean, I have to, again, preface this. I am not a sexologist. I am just a a fan of (laughs) you've done it. Yeah. I've done it a few times. Um, both giving and receiving. Okay. Uh, So I'm just a, just a fan. Um, so I've done a little research into it. Uh, like a hundred times, right? Well, I didn't sleep with every. I said the hundred first dates. So okay, okay. Everyone, everyone got that far. So, right. all right. So, ten to fifteen percent of women never have an orgasm. Okay. In how how life. sad is that? In their life, ten to fifteen percent of women never any orgasm. kind of orgasm. Nope. Interesting. Okay. And you know, there's a lot of reasons why shame can be part of it. You know, sure. women, especially in our culture, are taught that pleasure. Mm-hmm. is uh, not always a good thing for women and that we need to like suppress it. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, even still half, half of women aren't pleased with how often they get to orgasm. Okay. With or without a partner. With or without a partner. Okay. So orgasm is a mix between like physical and mental. Yes. So if you're not mentally there, if you're, if you're thinking about the kids or you're stressed out about work or you're having health issues, if you're not mentally ready to orgasm, it's going to be really hard for you to reach climax. Yes. And then the other side of that is if you or your partner Mm -hmm. um, or partners are not um, familiar with the anatomy or Mm -hmm. not patient enough. Mm. actually like learn your body Mm -hmm. that's the other side of it because everybody likes different stimulation everybody's body is different Mm -hmm. so and that's kind of the fun when you start to get to know somebody is to like learn their body and figure out what makes their body be able to reach climax yes yes and so do you have any favorite tips of the trade yeah absolutely absolutely so Um, what women don't understand. So men orgasm is pretty straightforward. Sometimes they're, they're more intense than others, depending on their level of hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, but women, um, they have several different types of orgasm. Yeah. And so a lot of women don't understand that there's more than just like clitoral orgasm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's different terms for it. Uh, but my favorite way that it's been described is gates. Like how do you spell that? Gates, like a like a a gate a door to walk through. Like oh, G A T E. Okay, okay, yeah. I wasn't sure what you're saying. Okay, gates. So the first gate is clitoral orgasm. Okay, and that one's generally easier to reach. Mm-hmm. And you cannot go through the other gates until you've reached that first one. Okay, okay. So that's one orgasm. That's gate number one. Okay. Gate number two is that G-spot orgasm that's Mm -hmm. inside. I assume Mm -hmm. everybody knows where the G-spot is. Um, If you don't, you should explore. Yeah, right. Get get up in there and try it out. (laughs) Yeah, just, you know, right around the inside of the opening, like figure out where, but it's not going to be as active unless you've orgasmed clitorally first. Okay. So make sure that you go through gate one. Okay. And then you can go towards gate two. Okay. And then it's like an escape room. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Once this is open, then this is released. Okay. All right. And I'm picturing lots of locks and chains, but go ahead. 
Yeah. So this is really also important for men. I don't know how many men listen to your podcast, but like, okay, wonderful. Okay. Men do not go to gate two until you've gone through gate one. Yeah. You need some lubrication in there and some excitement, right? Absolutely. You cannot, do not pass go, do not go to gate two, which is inside until you've gone through gate one. So you should not be going in anywhere until it could hurt. There's dryness and not preparedness. Yeah. And just throwing some lube on there is not enough. No, no, exactly. Agreed. I want her to enjoy it. And here's another tip for you guys. Just sorry. I I will get to the third gate in a minute. No, no, take your time. If you, yes, if you take your time with yeah. the ladies and you walk them through gate one and then to gate two and then to gate three, you will pass your rehearsal and they will want to come back for more. <laughs> You'll get a call back. Yeah, you will get a call back. All right. So gate two is the G-spot orgasm. And then gate three is something that a lot of people don't even know exist. Mm-hmm. And this is in the realm of what's called a deep vaginal erogenous zone. And I've heard so many women in my life say, oh, no, I can't. I cannot orgasm from a vaginal orgasm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which, you know, like everybody knows their own body. But I would argue that it's worth trying. OK. And here's why. So the clitoris only has one nerve that goes from the clitoris to the brain. Wait a minute. There's 8,000 nerve endings, but only one nerve goes to the brain from yes. From the clitoris. Well, that's where the rest of them go. Now the uterus, um, the, the cervix has three. Okay. So good. Yes. So a cervical orgasm is that much more intense. Okay. Absolutely worth the pursuit, but that is the third gate and it is incredibly hard to get there. Number one, if you're not in the right mindset and number two, if you haven't gone through gate one and gate two, you have to go to gate two to get to gate three. Yes. Interesting. Now, how do you know, this is a novice question, but still I'm going to ask it. How do I know if I've had a G-spot orgasm or a cervix or orgasm? Yeah, so, the, so the cervical orgasm is really hard to miss. Okay. It's just like you probably haven't um, if you're asking. Yeah, um, it's really hard to miss because it's such an intense release mm-hmm. that you get a flood of emotions. Like I, you can literally like sob and cry from such a good orgasm because mm-hmm. you will have that flood of emotions. So it's more now, full body. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's more, but also much more emotional. It's okay much more grounding. Okay. It's a completely different type Interesting. of orgasm. Okay. So there's an energetic release in there. All right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And a lot of um, like tension release. It, it can be an emotional release as well. Okay. And orgasms are good for stress, like partnered or not like solo orgasm is really good for yeah, stress. Absolutely. Do you have a uh, protocol that you follow for instance, like one a day or at least one a week, or do you have a number? <laughs> you know, I, I'm a, I will say as often as you can, um, but I also want to emphasize that some people like it is stressful to them to even just set aside time to be able to have sex. Yes. Um, so like when, when it feels right to you, like, like I said, if you're not in the right mindset, you're not going to be able to reach that third gate. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, there's more than just um, the cervical orgasm. There's a, a number of deep vaginal erogenous zones. So okay. if you're messing around in there or you and your partner are exploring in there after gate one and gate two, you're exploring in there to see where feels pleasurable to stimulate. It doesn't take a lot of stimulation, just a little. Um, you may find that your, your cervix is maybe too sensitive, but like around your cervix mm-hmm. is less mm-hmm. sensitive. And that is also, that's also a way to, to achieve orgasm. Yeah. It's all good. Right. If it feels good. And what is your philosophy on the use of lubricants and toys and pornography and just all the embellishments? Yeah. Well, you know, everybody likes what they like. Everybody enjoys different things. I will say that it is harder to, (laughs) sorry, it is harder. I know the pun, the pun gets you every time, right? Sorry. It is hard. It is more difficult to reach that third gate orgasm um, with specific sizes of penises or instruments that you're inserting. Um, so it needs, it needs to be big enough to of reach. a certain size. Got it. Yeah, okay. It needs to be long enough to reach. Oh, okay. Um, but you can use fingers. Your fingers so, can be long enough. Absolutely. So men, don't be afraid to explore. And if you are, you know, of a, a shorter length, then you need to walk her through gate one, two, and three before ever going in. With your finger. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. Sometimes that's more erotic and intimate. Yeah. Absolutely. Wonderful. Um, one thing that comes up when I talk to people about pleasure and orgasms is the vulnerability and the loss of control and the seemingly inability to, even if we talk all day long and have so much to say, the second sex and intimacy is introduced, we're like silent and closed up. And we, all of a sudden I'm saying we, cause I'm speaking about myself and a lot of women that I speak to, uh, feel like we don't know or have any idea what to say anymore. Like <laughs> all of those skills disappear. So what is that phenomenon? Do you think? Well, a lot of that is our conditioning. You know, uh-huh. we're taught that women who talk about sex or women who enjoy sex, that that's not a good thing. I would say that that has changed quite a bit. Uh, even since I was a kid, I grew up in Utah where it's like very conservative. It's like, I grew up in Utah. I could be loud about sex. Yeah, you can right. be loud. Exactly. If I can even like talk about anything to do with my body, it is absolutely possible for anyone. But I will say that it is a skill, like being able to talk about these very personal things, mm-hmm. just like any other skill and mm-hmm. the way that you develop a skill mm-hmm. is to practice. Sure. So if you don't feel like comfortable practicing with someone else or with your partner, Mm -hmm. maybe write a journal about your thoughts about it. And then once you feel like you've gotten your thoughts together, you may feel comfortable talking with your girlfriends or your, or your guy friends about it. And then eventually you may feel comfortable talking with your partner, but that practice of talking about these things. And by the way, dating also takes a lot of practice. That's why I encourage people to go out on as many dates as possible. Um, it's practice. It's a skill. Yes. Yes. 
Right. And then, and then the more you practice, the more you uh, not only raise your awareness about what you, what you like and what resonates with you, but it, um, it decreases probably the amount of fear and anxiety around. Absolutely. Well, right. and you also kind of like learn, right? Mm-hmm. So that first kind of stage when you're exploring, sometimes people will get frustrated or be like, nothing feels good, or I can't mm-hmm. like, get comfortable enough or calm enough to like enjoy it. But the more you do it, the yep. more you practice and explore, the more comfortable and confident you become in getting to know your own body, understanding what your body likes and what your body doesn't like. Yes. And over time, your level of pleasure increases because your level of discomfort with pleasure decreases. Yes. And a lot of the discomfort comes from body issues, body shame, body size, social conditioning, Um, so how do you coach men and women differently related to body, body shame? That's a tough one. Um, I actually wrote a long, I guess, article about it. I was a Facebook post. It's going to go up on my blog, um, Uh soon, but I, I run into this issue a lot, especially because people in middle age, when they're out dating again, they're like, oh, crap, I'm not in my 20s anymore. And this body is a little different than it was the last time I was out here. Um, really, interestingly enough, a lot of people tend to put off uh, dating altogether and say, I don't deserve to date or I'm not going to date until I have lost weight. Yeah. They now, like- yeah. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing because we, we only have enough time in every day to do what we have time for. You know, if you are so busy that you don't have time to date and focus on your health and on like reclaiming your body for yourself, which I highly recommend after a marriage or a long relationship to reclaim your body for yourself, yes. um, then always prioritize yourself. It is totally okay not to be looking for somebody to date or to marry. Yes. And I think women especially get that stigma a lot. I actually have, I've asked a lot of men this. I ask men, does anybody ever ask you when you're going to get remarried or even anything about like your girlfriends or anything? No, nobody ever asks like who your girlfriend is or when you're getting married. Interesting. Yeah. Women, on the other hand, they can't exist in the world without people asking what man they're associated with, what their relationship status is, et cetera, et cetera. You think that's just an assumption that a woman's not going to be able to be financially independent because of our patriarchy? Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. we could go down that road. I know. <laughs> All right. We'll stay, we'll stay on body shame. The lighter topic. Yeah. Of the two. Oh my so, gosh. I don't know. They're, no, they're both definitely intertwined. They um, are. They are absolutely. But you're right. In middle age, we have had, we've popped up babies and we have scars and we've had surgeries and gravity and um, just aging. And so how do you encourage people to, you know, accept themselves and um, know that there are partners out there who are not looking for our 20 year old selves, but are actually going to celebrate our 50 something year old selves, right? Yeah. Well, If anything, I tell them that it is the perfect time to date when you are overweight, when you are feeling um, maybe not your ideal self, because then when you happen upon somebody who's willing to accept that person, you know that they love you for you. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that sounds really idealistic. 
Um, and you know, I, I, I was 50 pounds heavier when I was married. Same you partner. Know. Um, yeah, well, yeah, with my, with my son's father. Okay. And I, and then, you know, when I got divorced, I, I was 50 pounds heavier and mm-hmm. I had to get out on the dating scene. Yep. And literally the only thing that changed was the clothes I was wearing. Right. Right. You know, You're still you, of course. Yeah. It, it took me a while to lose the weight, but once I stopped, once I got out of that mindset of fat people wear whatever, mm. you know, mm. like, I started wearing clothes that I felt good in that I felt okay. were stylish and cute. Okay. I actually didn't have to lose any weight to kind of give myself that boost of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say like practice. Um, when I got divorced, one of my high school friends, no longer a friend, by the way, told me, um, you know, when I was thinking about it, he said, well, you should not get divorced because nobody's going to want to date an overweight middle-aged single mom. Mm. And I, of course, didn't listen to him and I got divorced. And it turns out, actually, there's a hell of a lot of people out there who would want to date an overweight single mom in her 30s. And a lot of it just has to do with your confidence level Mm -hmm. and your willingness to just accept yourself as you are. Right. And we're not talking about overweight in the sense of not caring about ourselves or being uh, unhealthy and not, you know, being kind to ourselves. We're just talking about there are many different body shapes and sizes. And a lot of people don't hold so much. Uh, yeah. I was going to say weight, but like they, they don't care about it as much as we believe in our yes. heads. That they yeah. Care. Well, and a lot of times we care about it more than they do. Yes. So we need to stop ruling people out. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like I, I dated people of all different shapes and sizes when I was a large size mm-hmm. and I, I was really kind of baffled how many people who weren't large were open to dating me. Mm-hmm. Now that's not to say I didn't have some bad experiences, mm-hmm. like with both men, mostly men, a few women, I would still like get the feeling that my size bothered them. Okay. And then on the other side of that, it's been super interesting as I've met new people after losing 50 pounds, uh-huh. they don't know I used to be fat. Okay. And now I'm like on the in crowd with people who will like say mean things about overweight people. The fat phobia. Yeah. And they so don't do know you... that, 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 w- that, that is me. Like it's weird. Yeah. To have, it's a bit of a mind fuck, you know? And <laughs> like, do you take the opportunity to advocate for people of different sizes at that moment, um, or share your experiences at all. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I'll even like pull up a picture of like, here, this was me. Like if you weren't willing to date that Felicia, then you certainly don't get to date this Felicia. What's interesting with my clients though, and I will say this is more true for men. So men listen up men in their fifties and sixties, sometimes in their forties are far more likely to require women to be thin in order to be dateable, even when they themselves are clinically obese. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is a fascinating phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I have to walk clients through this idea of like, if you have these expectations for yourself, Mm-hmm. or uh, for others, then you have to have them for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot for them. A lot of them feel like they deserve to have 
that arm candy or the way I the way I often describe it is like women we can dye our hair and wear makeup to like look younger or more desirable. A lot of men in middle age just try to date a younger woman or, you know, a thinner woman or a more attractive woman. And they feel like that is their veneer that makes them feel younger or look younger, but it actually really doesn't. It actually just shows a big character flaw in that you can't accept others when you're expecting them to accept yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. And, and in all this, <clears throat> of course, there's so many levels to it. I don't want to equate better with thinner or more higher value with thinner. Um, especially as a fitness professional, I really love the idea of gaining confidence, gaining control, gaining power, gaining pleasure, gaining, um, self-worth and self-love and not focusing so much on what we need to lose. Because I think this whole idea of getting thinner is also a part of playing small in ourselves and our lives and society. And so a man who wants a very tiny woman for me, the way I translate that is that they are not ready for me to be big and bold in my body or my personality or my activism. And so I will not resonate with that person because I don't want to become smaller. I want to become more visible. Do you know what I mean? In a healthy, in the healthiest of ways. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's something that can be reframed and everyone's working within, you know, society's messed up constructs of what is, what is beautiful or what is desirable. Um, so yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, my my whole point with sharing that I used to be bigger is that I am the same person. Right. Isn't it interesting? The comments that you got were like, oh, you look so good now. Or, or I'm so glad you found your one person even said, I'm so glad you found your smaller self or something along the lines of you're like, and you were so sweet. You're like, not the point, but (laughs) (laughs) like you missed the point because they're so caught up in the narrative it's so ingrained yeah Yeah. they couldn't even read through the post the meaning of your post which was the character flaw of somebody who can't see past weight yeah yeah well and if you yourself are thin right now like you're just one health issue away from being 50 or 60 pounds heavier 10 years from now yeah so you know maybe don't judge other people based off of their skin suits because they're just at one point in their life. You know, there's a lot of people who judge me very harshly when I weigh a lot more. Yes. And now they're suddenly interested in me or wanting, wanting to date me. And I'm sorry, but I won't date somebody who's fat phobic. If you can't accept somebody at whatever size they are, then I can't accept that character flaw. Yes. And this, of course, brings me back to family of origin issues. Um, But if you were raised in a family, I know I was where, um, where there was fat shaming and even my father still today um, is fat phobic. And we'll talk about people who are overweight as being ignorant, uneducated, always eating fast food, which is just about the farthest thing from, from me. And so he makes presumptions that I have an unhealthy lifestyle because I'm larger than I was when I was 20. And so I have to really fight hard to fight against the, the values that my parents taught me and the narrative I've learned all my life. Um, and still here because we become the age, have you ever heard this, that when you're with your parents or family of origin, you become the age you were at your earliest of traumas. So you like revert back to this quieter. I become very quiet and shy when I'm with my parents because I, um, 
I'm once again, like 12. Right. And yeah. it's harder for me to fight it. So it takes so much, um, strength and inner confidence to walk in, um, and, and fight that and, and really challenge it. Um, but I imagine that's true for a lot of people who grew up in a family who basically said, unless you stay such and such size, you will not find a partner or your partner will leave you. Or of course he had an affair. Um, yeah unfortunately a common common narrative yeah or nobody's gonna want you at that size and the truth of it is is somebody does want you like people are so lonely right now and I refuse to believe that people would rather be alone and lonely than to oh my gosh talk to somebody who's slightly bigger than they would like or much bigger than they would like whatever it is like People are so lonely right now that they're looking for connection. Mm-hmm. And especially while a lot of people are doing virtual dating, you know, a lot of people are dating just like, just like this, like having a first conversation. Which like is this. great. You get to know somebody yeah. without all the body issues. You got like chest up. You don't have a whole <laughs> lot of like information on the, on the physical, which is good. Which exactly. is really good. And honestly, like the most good looking person can say something that makes them really unattractive. Mm-hmm. and somebody who is less traditionally attractive mm-hmm. um, by society's standards I, I gotta say I am super attracted to like larger people myself um, not fetishizing them or anything but like I, I have no um, I like really all genders and all sizes when it when it comes to my taste and other people I am attracted to personality Right. When somebody says the right things or it's like smart or witty or funny, like those are the characteristics that actually truly make you attractive to other people. And so those are the things that I work on in my coaching program is to help people be able to communicate their true selves to others and find Mm -hmm. and bring out other people's true selves early on. And I think that brings us to the idea of what's pleasurable and erotic beyond even sex and Mm -hmm. physical attractiveness, like what is erotic is so soulful and deep in my character and values. Um, And if it lights me up inside talking to somebody, I don't care again, man, woman, size, anything. I don't care. It's like, I get lit up when I talk to this person, there's an energetic exchange that I want more of because I enjoy myself in that lit up state. And so all the other things are secondary often. You know, that reminds me though, of something that's kind of become a pet peeve for me. Okay. That is middle-aged men treating women as if they are an accessory. Mm. So they love talking to and engaging with women their own age Mm. that may be larger, Mm -hmm. but they refuse. They get caught up at this Mm. idea of being seen with that person in public. Interesting. So they'll sacrifice their own happiness, Mm. their own loneliness. Yeah in order to have this idea that's unattainable for them, right. Um, to have a woman as an accessory because they also, I am like, men are also a victim of this fucked up system of ours. Mm -hmm, Um, you know, like they they're sacrificing being lonely and connection just at the thought of being seen with somebody who isn't considered like a really good, you know, arm candy. And what, what does it say about them if they're dating somebody size two versus 
20, who cares? Like what, what do they feel? Do you think that it says about them if they're dating somebody who's larger? I don't know. There's, there's been a post going around Facebook recently. It just really pisses me off. It's one of the, the British actors. They show a picture of him with his wife when she's like 20 and small and skinny. And then they show a picture of them together now and she's like she's so loyal what a good guy to stay yeah. with her is that the crap they're saying yeah like he's and you know she's had five of his children and like he's getting accolades for staying with her because she's oh, you know, gone from a size two to a size 16 or something yeah and I think it really is just our culture is broken around yeah. this idea and also the idea that women have to be young and small throughout their entire life Right. And that has roots in misogyny. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of men are like right on the cusp of wanting to like undo that because they see the harm. They just so. don't know how to get there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I'd like to think that if they start listening to, I don't know, Brene Brown and Glennon Doyle and a lot of the activists, uh, women out there who are speaking about these issues, it would be really great for them to um start educating themselves about, about the power of a woman and how the, how the, um, that that's so much sexier and so much more desirable and fun than absolutely somebody who wants to play small, just to be small. You know what I mean? Just like, yeah. stay small. Um, a lot of them know that on a visceral level, like yeah. they, they are, when I was much larger, there were men and women who were very attracted to me, but mm -hmm. when it came to like, wanting to like go out and like meet their friends and stuff, they were resistant to that idea. They loved hanging out with me. They loved talking with me, but being seen with me was another story. And I think that that's something that we culturally yeah. have to, you know, face head on that yeah. that's a problem. Yeah. And we have to look in or inwardly to ourselves as to our own. Um, I just did a comedy show with a woman who, um, is larger. And she talked about fat phobia and she said, you know what? I'm fat phobic. She's like, I have body shame. I shame people who are bigger. She's like, I have to look at myself. I have to look at my own values, my own beliefs about other people's size and the judgments I make, um, to start to shift things. And of course it's a place of needing to, um, trust herself and accept herself and love on herself before she can even attempt to enter a relationship where somebody could do that, which I think is universal for all things. Like, unless you're somebody who trusts and loves yourself, how could you possibly ask somebody else to trust you or love you? Like you can't find somebody to fulfill that part of you that's empty or broken. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I will say though, yeah. That even if you are somebody who is struggling with the self-love piece, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean to disconnect mm -hmm. because sometimes seeing other people love you can help mm -hmm. you love yourself. Mm -hmm. So even if you are struggling with that, you know, identity or that self-love or taking time for yourself, don't disconnect because through other people is where we can really find love for ourselves too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Good point good point that it can go both ways. I think I'm, I'm sure as people do, I look at it through my own, uh, lens. And I think I talk to a lot of women who are putting in a ton of effort, not just physically to make themselves healthier and learning about how to be healthier and well, but really learning new skills and challenging some, themselves and thinking outside the box and trying new things and taking risks and learning and unlearning and that they feel like they're outgrowing 
their um, partners in this way, in the sense that they're loving on themselves so much that they're willing to, um, to really expand and that often their partners are um, kind of status quo and settling and not loving themselves enough to um, work as hard. I don't know if I'm saying that right. You or are. Is... You know, it brings me back to your very first question about Great, how- Great, we're I... circling back. Yeah, all the way back around to how I got into this line of work. Yes. Um, which, you know, you get on a tangent and I miss like a very important point with that. So through those over a hundred first dates, I figured out that people were really bad at dating. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is you, you listen to people's stories, you talk to them, find out like what happened in marriages or previous relationships. And you begin to realize like this person is refusing to do the work or to grow. Right. And so that is, I mean, that is literally what I designed a program around. That's why I focus on coaching men because I find that women, we, we encourage each other to do the work, you know, we're doing we, the work. Yeah. We find a good book. Um, and you know, we send it to the other, we share it. Um, you know, we, we buy it for each other and say, this yes. book is life-changing men aren't not as good much. doing that for each other. And honestly, like, I'm not saying women need to do it for men, but I'm saying women include men in those self-help in those self-realizations, because mm -hmm. there are a lot of men who do want to come along. Yes. So those absolutely. are the ones that I'm reaching out to. I'm the mom of a teen son. I want, I love men. I want men to come along and be able to be emotionally intelligent and to be able to communicate in relationships and to be able to have a full range of emotions beyond just being happy, uh, horny or hungry. Like yeah. <laughs> the three H's for teens. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, or yeah. angry too. Angry is yeah. the one, but like yeah. men should be able to cry and be sad Absolutely. and have a full range of emotions. And I think that, um, men, especially in middle age, especially right now between the boomer generation and millennial or xenial, okay. xenial and up. Okay. It feels like that is where the the most brokenness is in mm. terms of men being able to do the work to feel mm -hmm. a full range of emotions. Mm -hmm. We're at this kind of like cultural point mm -hmm. where younger folks are yes. being like, oh yeah, therapy is great. And I, I want to feel all my emotions and we yes. need to, you know, learn about nonviolent communication and all, yes. all of these, you know, awesome, wonderful things. And then there's that old, older crowd still mm -hmm. that is not doing a good job in terms of yep. opening up. I think you're so right that we can learn from the youth because across all genders, there's such a deeper emotional intelligence and uh, empathy and compassion and, and, uh, inclusion, which is beautiful to see. And I would also encourage men to not only read the books their um, women are reading, but to also, there's some lovely men's groups out there now um, that are highly supportive and it, it may not be a book club, but they do talk and they gather and they're online and they're sometimes free. So there's so many resources out there uh, for men to, to talk and learn from each other too. But it's, it's rare. It's certainly not as um, prevalent. So we have a lot to work to do and so far to go in all of this. I could talk to you about so many things. I know. Oh my goodness. This has been so fun. I think we should do it again. Yeah, definitely. We'll do part two, gate two. For <laughs> we'll have our second. Did I make, did I make the cut? Do I get a second date? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I've only gotten to the first 
gate. So I need a second date with you to figure this out. So yes, I I've only entered the first part of the escape room. <laughs> so um, yes, I am intrigued. And, uh, and I think those are important conversations to have, of course. So if people want to continue the conversation with you, Felicia, how could they find you? Yeah, um, I'm online. You can go to demystifydating.com. Okay. Some people struggle to spell that. So I also have learnhowtodate.com. Okay. And you can email me at Felicia, that's F-E-L-I-C-I-A, okay. at learnhowtodate.com. Fantastic. And you're on Facebook and Instagram and all the places. Yes. Yep. I'm, I'm all the places. Excellent. Excellent. Such a pleasure talking to you. Please, everybody reach out to Felicia if you are, especially if you are dating or wanting to date. And if you want to continue the conversation with me, I would be so excited to have a conversation with you about what's going on in your life. We could do a discovery call. We could talk about coaching or my therapeutic comedy work, or just tell me how you like the podcast. And if you do like the podcast, and we sure hope you did, please subscribe and rate it and share it. It's so much fun to, to share it with other people. So if you heard, did you know there was a gate one and two and three of orgasms? Like check this out, have a listen and just share it. It would be fun to, uh, to hear your feedback as well. So please feel free to contact me at Pasha at PashaMarlow.com. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram as well. Um, yeah. And there I, on the show notes, I will include all of Felicia's information and mine. So it'll be really easy to, to find and reach either of us, but it has been a complete pleasure to talk to you, Felicia, about all these juicy topics. The pleasure has been all mine. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk to everybody soon. Bye. Bye.